I'm Matt, if I've not met you before. Hello, it's nice to see you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today. I'm quite nervous um, because it's quite a weird passage. Let's use the voice break as well. It's all going well for me right now. I want to start by asking you a question. Why are you here? Yeah, I know. Sauce. Why are you here? What are you doing with your life? Where's it going? What is the meaning of your life? Does it even have any meaning? Man, one Peter is hard to find. Maybe you're like Craig David. Craig David was born to do it. All right, according to his debut album, Born to Do It. He was a singer and he knew that singing was what he always wanted to do and indeed what he felt he was always meant to do. He was born to do it. Maybe that describes you. You know, you're confident and content with your place in life. Wherever you find yourself, you know, you were born to do it. At the time in, you know, September 2000, I agreed with Craig David. I thought he was born to do it. And I bought that album the day that it came out. It's the second album I ever bought. It was brilliant. Especially the last track, Can You Fill Me In? Cue, excellent link here. Now that may describe your, your answer to the question, what are you doing with your life? Can someone fill me in? There's a couple of ways that you can deal with that. First, you know, you may offer the less serious answer of 42, citing the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I have no idea what that means. I've never read the book. But when I asked Google what the meaning of life was, it told me 42. So maybe that's you. Maybe you don't know what life is all about, so you sort of shrug it off with a joke. Maybe you don't know, and it's not a joke. Maybe that question haunts you. Albert Camus famously stated that the question, what is the purpose of life, was another way of saying, why don't we kill ourselves? Maybe that's you. You don't know why you're here, and you don't know why you carry on. Well, if that is you, I'm glad that you're here with us today. The Guardian, that great Manchester newspaper, says that the meaning of life is to live it. To live each moment, and not let a single experience pass you by. That's really just another way of saying that the meaning of life or that our purpose is to get as much pleasure as possible, isn't it? It's another way of saying that the meaning of life is to enjoy life, that our purpose is to seek blessing, to love living. But we Christians know better, don't we? We know that the meaning of life is not to seek pleasure. We know that life is all about doing the best that you can. It's all about being as good as possible, so that when the last day comes, when the final curtain draws, God might, he just might, let us into heaven. The whole point of being here is trying to earn a spot up there, right? Right? No, of course not. That is not the Christian message. That's not the good news that Jesus brought into this dark world. So why do so many of you live like it is? Why do so many of you deep down think that that's what we're here for and that that is what God is like? Let's look at what Peter actually says, verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and seek good days must keep their tongue from evil. And their lips from deceitful speech. 
They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. So he does say that Christians are to be as good as possible and they are to live a holy life and they've been called to this. But he says there's a reason for it to inherit a blessing. He then qualifies that with this quote from Psalm 34 that we've read a few times this morning. Whoever would love life and see good days, so whoever wants to really enjoy life, you know, live the way that the Guardian says we should, must turn from evil and do good. So, stepping back, what Peter says is, if you want to enjoy life, if you want to be really happy, okay, then live a holy life. If you're a Christian, that's your calling. That's your purpose. Like Craig David, you were born to do it. That's what Peter says in chapter 1, isn't it? Christians have been born again to a living hope. Fleshes that inheritance out here. That we may inherit a blessing and enjoy life. He says in chapter 1 that that inheritance can never spoil, never perish, never fade. This living hope that we inherit is partly, he says, about enjoying living a holy life. So let me repeat my question from earlier. Why do so few of us love life? Why are we struggling? Why do we live like God doesn't want us to enjoy life? What's missing? What's gone wrong? Well, in this passage, Peter gives us the answers for how to love life. So rather than thinking about why we don't love life, like we did a few weeks back in chapter 1, we're going to think about how we can love life. Here you go. Here's Peter's top tips for how to love life. Number one, put absolutely everyone else first. That well-known way to enjoy your life. Number two, fear the sovereign Lord God more than other people. And number three, follow the awesome, almighty, undisputed king who bought you with his blood. In a nutshell, as David said in Psalm 34, turn from evil and do good. Live a holy life. That's Peter's answer. So let's look at it step by step. Verses 8 to 12. Put absolutely everyone else first. We just read it. First, notice how Peter starts this section finally. He's starting to wrap things up now. And I think that's why he's evoking themes from previous chapters. Holy living, inheritance, joy, and as we'll see, identity. Now look at the words that Peter chooses to describe holy living. Okay, Like-minded. Sympathy. Compassion. Humility and love. Now, love one another is better understood as brotherly love. We'll come on to that in a moment. And in the Roman world, these words were not used to describe relationships in the public sphere. They were predominantly grounded in family interactions. And Peter applies them to the Christian community. So he says, basically, treat each other like family. Because you've been given a new birth into God's family. So live like this. And that means that amongst our community, messy lives on display means opening your diaries for each other, making time for one another, prioritising each other, involving yourself when others are struggling and being inconvenienced, forgiving each other, knowing that we can't walk away from each other because we're family. My daughter, Anne Wynne over there, who's surprisingly being quiet, is about five months old. When she was two weeks old, she got quite ill. Um, We'd started to give her a bottle, and we didn't realise that she had an intolerance to protein in cow's milk. 
This gave her like acid reflux that mentioned she was sick quite a lot and had a lot of pain in her throat. She was really ill. And they admitted her into hospital and Rhiannon as well for a week. And partway through that week, they also discovered that Rhiannon had a virus and thought that it would be a really good idea to move Rhiannon to a different hospital on the other side of Manchester. So I had my son at home with my mother-in-law. I had my two, three-week-old daughter at hospital on her own. And I had my wife in this other hospital in South Manchester. And I didn't know what to do. And I just, I had to call my mum and just said, Mum, I need you to be here. You just have to drop everything and come and be here. And she did. She came. She spent the night with Anwin. Um, it was inconvenient, but she was there because that's what family does. And that is what it's got to be like for us in the church. We've got to be there for each other. We've got to be willing to call upon each other. We've got to be willing to serve each other. We primarily express this at Grace Church through our community groups. So, easy question. Are you in one? If you are, is it a priority? If it's not, sort it out. Now look over those qualities from verse 8 again. As commentator Karen Jobes, she helps, helpfully observes, these are qualities that presume a high commitment to the stability and well-being of the community. Modern Western concepts of individualism tend to trump commitment to community. Where commitment is found, it's often evaluated in terms of individual needs. So an individual whose needs are no longer met by a community terminates the commitment and seeks a more obliging group. Such thinking runs counter to the qualities found in chapter 3, verse 8. And then she offers some insights into those phrases. She says, like-minded implies a willingness to conform your goals, your needs and your expectations to the purposes of the larger community. Sympathy or understanding implies seeking to see things from another's point of view. Those of us who are married, how often do we fail at this? Just seeking to put ourselves in the shoes of our spouse during a heated exchange can completely transform an argument into a God-glorifying conversation. Jobs continues, The emphasis on brotherly love often falls on love rather than brother, as it does in the NIV in that translation, which sometimes leads to a misunderstanding that affection is more important than a resolve to do what is right by others with whom we are substantially related by faith in Christ. In other words, Peter says, love is a choice, and the Christian must choose, that is resolve, to do right by others over ourselves. Love is a choice, and the Christian must choose, that is resolve, to do right by others over ourselves. How often do we do this? How many times this week have you put someone else's needs above your own? I mean, everything within us tells us that the way to be happy is to put our needs first, isn't it? I mean, our culture breathes survival of the fittest and you snooze, you lose. Me first. But Peter calls this way of life, handed down from our ancestors, he says, in 1 verse 18, worthless and empty. We think, my needs first and that will give me happiness. But it doesn't, it leads to emptiness every time. Is that how you live? Do you live me first? You can tell by what you spend your money on, what you think about most often, what you worry about, what you long for. You can tell by how you interact with other people. Are you generous with your time and your stuff and your money or are you me first? 
And don't be fooled, there is a way to appear really generous and actually be completely me-oriented. So is your generosity and other person-directed activity done just to make you feel good about yourself? Or done just to keep you busy? Or done just to make you feel important? Peter says you will never, ever be happy until you really, truly put others first. That's one of the great things about having a family or flatmates. You're constantly surrounded by people who you have to love. Constantly given opportunities to put them first. Am I going to do that washing up? It's the third time he's left that pan on the side. Constantly surrounded by people that you've got this opportunity to love. And it's a better way to live. It's one of the reasons why children are such an amazing blessing, actually. Our society says that children are a massive inconvenience, but they're not. They're a joy and a delight, and they give us opportunities to serve another. They show us that the world doesn't revolve around us. Compassion fits with this as well. Put yourself in the shoes of another. Feel what they feel. Put them first. Put your rights and your needs and your desires to the side. In other words, do good. And Peter says, you will love life. And then he shows us in verse 9 what humility looks like. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with a blessing because to this you were called. And as Jez so powerfully showed us a couple of weeks ago, Christ demonstrated this kind of humility at the most difficult moment imaginable on the cross. As he was hanging there being reviled and spat at. He didn't, revi- he didn't insult them back. Rather, he asked his father to forgive them. Now, why would he do that? Well, Peter told us it was because he entrusted himself to God. He knew what his calling was, and he knew the hope that was in front of him, that was coming to him. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Somebody receiving abuse and actually returning that with blessing. That's an attractive picture, isn't it? People want to be around people who behave like that. As Ralph said a couple of weeks back, walking the talk is just as crucial as talking it. So it should be amongst the whole Christian community. That kind of community will make an impression. That kind of community is light. That kind of community is different. Radically different. It would win people for Christ like Ralph talked to us about. Is this us, Grace Church? City Church, is this you? You know, City Church, is this what you're expecting from next week onwards? Are you up for this? Because that's the kind of community that will win people for Jesus in the city centre. They will see a difference and they will be drawn to it. You might feel small at 30 in a room that holds 600, but that kind of community can win people for Christ. Because they will see your love of life, amongst other things. Community groups, is this how you approach your missional work? You know, through the choir or the international cafe or the park litter picks or the old person's home, going down to the Claremont, a chance to live out your faith. Do you believe that if people see our faith at work in the way that we treat each other and treat others, that we're going to stand out in a good way? Because that's what Peter says. But how does that work? I mean, it's what Peter says. It's what David says in Psalm 34. Do good and you'll love life. But how does that fit? I mean, being on the cross and being spat at wasn't pleasant for Jesus, was it? 
It's not like he was there going like, man, this is wicked. It wasn't at all. It was awful. David's life wasn't always easy. And Psalm 34 concludes with, many are the afflictions of the righteous, before adding, the Lord delivers him out of all of them. And Peter's been pretty straight up with these Christians, that the Christian life doesn't exclude suffering. I mean, verse 9, he says, expect insults and evil. Well, Wayne Grudem is really helpful on this. He says, to love life doesn't mean everything's brilliant. Rather suggests an enjoyment of life and contentment in the life that God has given, no matter what the outward circumstances are. In fact, Grudem has this really helpful table where he collects all the examples from 1 Peter where blessings in this life are promised as a result of doing good or righteous conduct. I'm going to put it on the screen. I thought it was so good. Can you guys see that? Yeah, let me read it to you. So, righteous conduct of loving Christ results in unutterable joy in 1 verse 8. In verse 9 of chapter 1, continuing faith results in more benefits of salvation. In verse 17 of chapter 1, living a holy life with fear would result in avoiding God's fatherly discipline. 2 verse 2, partaking of spiritual milk, that is feeding on the word, means growing up towards salvation. You would get that. Trusting God and doing right while suffering, in chapter 2, would mean that you get God's approval. Submitting to your husbands would mean that we would see husbands one for Christ. Living considerately with wives would mean that prayers wouldn't be hindered. Enduring reproach for Christ would mean that a spirit of glory in God would rest upon us. Casting our cares on God would mean that he would care for our needs. And resisting the devil would mean that God would restore, establish and strengthen us. So, I mean, that's just from the letter. It's just a list. But I thought, wow, that's quite interesting. Paints quite a big picture. And do you know what you notice about all those blessings? They're nothing to do with living a prosperous, healthy or wealthy life. You know, often the comforts that we assume are going to make us happy and joyful and content. We think are material and physical, but not these. They don't include freedom from opposition or suffering either. Rather, they're more spiritual, psychological, interpersonal, as Wayne Gruden puts it. So this then is how Christians can love life and yet suffer. The very things that bring us joy are not rooted in material gain or comfort, but rather God himself. And that's Peter's next point. Look at God, look at God instead of men, and fear him more than men. Let's look at verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for your hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So Peter now starts to address some of the sufferings and marginalisation that marginalisation marginalisation that some of these Christians are experiencing and that others are worried about. Okay, and he essentially repeats what he said in chapter two: "Don't worry. If you live such good holy lives, who would want to hurt you? And even if they did, you're going to be blessed." Now remember that quote from Psalm 34, it's in verse 12, it finishes, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And as Peter then continues in verse 17, 
It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And remember the blessing of the holy living. It brings a peace and a joy that can't be explained. A spiritual and psychological contentment, even if suffering occurs. What he means by God's will is similar to what he said in chapter 2. To suffer for doing right is commendable before God. It's not that God wants us to suffer and is looking forward to it. But that he would rather his people do good than do wrong. Even if the result of that is suffering for us. And so he may put us in situations um, where we have to choose what we're going to do. And so Peter then says, well don't be frightened of men. Fear or revere Christ who is in sovereign control. Who is watching over you. His eyes are on the righteous, but his face turns away from those who do evil. It's a reiteration of 1 verse 18 again. The ways of this life handed down from our ancestors are empty. But if we do good and live God's way, we will receive a blessing. And that's why he can essentially say, love your enemies in verse 9. And then add in this section, be gentle with them, respect them and answer them. Love isn't an emotion, it's, it's a choice to act rightly before an enemy, we said that earlier. But it's not just non-retaliation that's called for. Christians are called to bless their enemies in verse 9. So that means to invoke God's favour upon them, like Christ did on the cross. Jesus made this point himself with the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 6. It's the story of a guy, from two, warring, two guys from two warring nations, and the Samaritan finds a Jewish guy lying on the floor, beaten up, and normally spit on him and be on his way but he doesn't he chooses to bless him now this isn't something that comes naturally to us especially if someone is insulting us or being malicious we've all known someone who doesn't who just doesn't like us and more than that seems to have it in for us haven't we maybe it's that guy from the office maybe it's that mum from the toddler group you know the really gobby one maybe it's your boss at work Maybe it's that girl from your Tuesday morning lecture. They're always taking a swipe at you. You don't know why. How easy it is to respond in kind, isn't it? But we need to keep a clear conscience. That is, do good. Be gentle and respectful. So as to shame those who are against us with our good conduct. That's what Peter says. And we're told that this will bless us more than the sweet taste of revenge. It'll be better for us to seek their good than to mutter behind the back of a co-worker or call out that dad from in front of all the other parents, even though nothing could seem better in that moment than really giving it to them. Peter doesn't advocate a withdrawal from hostile society. He says, live your faith out in front of it and be open and ready to explain your hope and bless it. As said before, like Ralph said, Living out our faith will create opportunities enough to speak about it. The question is, though, do we stand out? Do we stand out? In the book 1984, which is a classic, the main character, Winston Smith, is at odds with the rest of his society. It's a society that has succumbed to totalitarian rule. But he doesn't think like he's supposed to. He doesn't act like he's supposed to. And he flirts with the secret resistance and eventually gives himself fully to the cause he knows the risks but he can't just blend because that would mean the death of his soul what about us do we just blend 
Is there any depth to us? What impact does that have on your soul? Jesus wanted his followers to be salty, that is, be distinctive. He didn't say that because he wanted us to go out and get slaughtered by everyone. Because he knew it would be good for us and he knew it would be good for the world. And this is how we do it, not by forcing opportunities to barrage people with statements about God, but by living such good lives that they see it and ask, why do you live like you do? Are you committed to that? Is that what your community group is committed to? Are you all pulling in the same direction? We can let the content of our message do the offending when we present it this way. And this doesn't mean that there aren't times when we just need to bite the bullet, you know, and just have a conversation with someone. Sometimes we do. But in our society, which mirrors this one Peter is speaking into, that cannot be the norm. We have to live it out to earn the credibility to be taken seriously and listened to. So what stops you? What are you afraid of more than God? What fear haven't you given over to him? You know, it's not like Peter is standing back and sort of being like, you guys all suck and I'm great. He knows all about this. He's speaking from terrible, terrible first-hand experience. You know, over a charcoal fire, he denied Jesus three times while he was being tried. Self-preservation. Thought it would make him happy, or at least safe. Do you know what he did afterwards? He wept bitterly. By the time he writes this letter, he knows he'd have been blessed had he been willing to suffer for what was right. After all, God was in control. Jesus had even warned the disciples of what was to come, displaying his power. But Peter, due to fear, just wasn't willing to follow in Jesus' footsteps at that time. That's exactly what he moves on to say in our final chunk. Follow the awesome, almighty, undisputed king who has brought you with his blood. That's a very long sentence, and it's a very overwhelming image. Let's read from verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it... Only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right-hand side. With angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Now before we get into that chunk... Properly, We do have to deal with verses 19 to 21, which are basically a massive pile of what? And we're going to have to get a bit technical. I heard a great way of describing this. Sometimes we come to a passage like this, and it makes us think of this. Flat pack furniture. Who doesn't love it? Making me think of that special time we shared, David Eisner. Now, maybe you're already filled with dread at the thought of flat pack furniture. You know you have to put this thing together. You open it up, and you recognize all the parts. You kind of know what it should end up looking like. But you also know you're going to spend ages like this. Scratching your head. Trying to understand what the instructions say. Trying just to pronounce what this thing is called. Rekval. 
Quite suddenly, it seems, Peter tells us four new things. First, after his death, Jesus made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Second, these spirits had been disobedient in the days of Noah. Third, Noah's building of an ark to rescue his family points towards baptism. And fourth, baptism is less about washing clean and more about the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Now, I don't know about you, but that's four things that we might have wanted to leave in the box while we assembled one Peter. I'm kind of ruining the fact that John Chapman and Mike Tyndall are away today. <laughs> what are these pieces doing and how do they fit into the whole? Well, if you feel confused, let me just say you're not alone. This passage is one of the most debated and written about from the earliest days of the church. Even Martin Luther said, This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant. Well, you and me both, Martin. You and me both. Now, there are quite a few accepted interpretations for this passage. I'm going to share two of them with you that I think are most convincing. And then I'm going to tentatively let you know which one I prefer, with the caveat that I still don't really know what Peter meant in every part of this section. And I hope that's okay. Now, the first interpretation understands spirits as referring to um, unsaved human beings okay, of Noah's day. And then Christ in spirit proclaimed the gospel in the days of Noah through Noah. The unbelievers who heard Christ preaching didn't obey. Um, in the days of Noah, um, they didn't obey in the days of Noah, sorry, and are now suffering judgment. They're, they're the imprisoned spirits. And there are several reasons that support this view. So the first one, Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness in, in 2 Peter, in 2 verse 5. And herald means preacher, and that corresponds with the word proclaim in Greek. Second reason to support this view, Peter says that the Spirit of Christ was speaking through the Old Testament prophets in chapter 1, chapter 1 verse 11. So Christ could have been speaking through Noah as an Old Testament prophet, that's, that's, that could follow. The context can indicate that Christ was preaching through Noah, um, who was in a persecuted minority, and then God saved Noah, which is similar to the situation in Peter's time. You know, Christ is now preaching the gospel through Peter and his readers, we just read that in 3.15. They're a persecuted minority, but God will save them. So that's how the first view interpretation can fit. Now the second interpretation understands spirits as fallen angels, who while imprisoned await final judgment, and Christ proclaimed to them of his triumph on the cross. Now reasons supporting this view include, some interpreters say that sons of God in Genesis 6 are angels who sin by basically sleeping with human women um, when God's patience was waiting in the days of Noah. Excuse me. Now, almost without exception, the second reason, almost without exception, in the New Testament, the word that Peter uses for spirits refers to supernatural beings rather than people. And there's a lot of examples of this, like a lot. It's overwhelming. And the third reason to support this view is that the word prison is not used anywhere else in Scripture as a place of punishment after death for human beings, but it is used for Satan in Revelation chapter 20 and other fallen angels in 2 Peter. This view sees Noah as a second example after the example of Christ in verse 18. I think you could take either of those views and come to similar conclusions as to why Peter includes these verses in his argument, basically to encourage them. I favour the second view, partly because it fits the Greek um, quite a lot better, and partly because I think it fits with Peter's argument um, a bit better. I'll hopefully explain that a bit better as we go on, but there isn't much in it. So we'll go with view two. 
if you don't mind. And now that we've sort of built our wardrobe, let's get away from that. Let's step inside and uh, get a feel for what it's all about. So Peter's just said in verse 17 that it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. Okay? Because verse 18, that's what Jesus Christ did. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. It may have looked like total failure, but actually it was total victory. You see, God the Father blessed Jesus for his faithfulness. Jesus knew that he would see good days after the cross. After being made alive, he went and proclaimed victory to the imprisoned spirits or fallen angels who disobeyed while Noah built the ark. Those who disobeyed while Noah built the ark were proved to be foolish as they were punished where Noah and his family were saved by God through the water. Now we too are saved through water, the water of baptism. Now this doesn't mean that the act of baptism saves us. Peter makes that really clear by stating that baptism saves us by the resurrection of Christ. So if the act doesn't save us, what does he mean? Well, he does explain. He says, baptism doesn't save by the, wash, by the washing of our sins, but rather the pledge of a clear conscience towards God that baptism expresses and represents, saves us. So baptism is an expression of a clear conscience we have towards God. And that's what saves us. It's basically our faith in Jesus that saves us. And baptism represents that. Okay? This pledge of a clear conscience can only come from the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only foundation for a clear conscience that we can have. Our sins are gone because he took them. He suffered once for our sins, meaning we don't have to suffer for them a second time. There's no second payment. It's been paid. Baptism proclaims Christ's death. We're buried with him as we go under the water. And it proclaims his resurrection and our new birth as we come up again. Those who ignored Noah were proved wrong. Those who ignore Jesus will be proved wrong too. We're told Jesus has gone into heaven, ascended to God's right hand. That means that he's now sat in the seat of undisputed power. He is the awesome, almighty king God the Father has chosen to rule over everything and everyone. So follow him. Follow in his footsteps, live like he lived. But in order to do that, you need to know who you follow, okay? So this, as John showed us last week, is not who we follow. Jesus isn't merely our buddy. He's not our pal. And to think of him like this diminishes him so much. And it might be attractive because it means that we can put ourselves on the top. We become the top dog. But we're not going to be happy living like that. He is the one who has angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. That is everything that you can think of, physical or spiritual, that is powerful, is underneath him. That is to say, everything is under his control. One day every knee will bow. And yet, this king, this powerful one, is approachable. We have nothing to fear because he suffered to bring us to God. So while we mustn't think of him as buddy Christ, we are told that we've got nothing to fear of this fearsome God. And here's how we're told to picture him, not in this passage but elsewhere. We sang about it. He's a lion. 
He's the king. He is fierce. He is powerful. There's no one above him. All are in submission to him. And yet he's also a lamb. Approachable. Gentle. Humble. Sympathetic. Extending compassion and brotherly love towards us. He's both at the same time. And if you follow him, if you seek to do good, if you fear him over other people, if you serve yourself last, then you will love life. That's what Peter's saying. That's the message of this passage. So why don't we live like this? And why, when we try, doesn't it work? We've all tried doing good, but we still feel so empty. Live a life of failure and lack confidence in our identity as children of God, as those loved by Jesus. Why? What is the problem? What is the, the disconnect that means that we, we live in fear and just blend into society, becoming almost indistinct? Why, if Jesus has earned it for us, do we keep trying to earn God's favour for ourselves? I mean, Peter says, live a good life, but not to earn God's favour. Live a good life to be, you know, someone who enjoys life. So why do we keep doing this? Well, it's because as we read in Psalm 34, we haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's why we're not hungry for more of God, and it's why we lack faith. And this can be traced deeper. We don't get that we're saved by Jesus' resurrection as well as his suffering on the cross. So it's like we only look at half the picture most of the time. We either forget or we just don't know what difference it makes. It's like something a little bit embarrassing that you don't really want to think about. But it's absolutely vital. I mean, what happened when sin entered the world? What was the outcome that God warned Adam and Eve against? What did he promise them would happen if they sinned? He told them that death would enter the world, right? And it did, big time. Everyone has died since that point. But Christ exhausted our sins on the cross. He suffered for them. He paid the penalty. But we so seldom have confidence that it worked. Why? Because we completely neglect the evidence. Tim Keller tells this great story that illustrates this really well. Imagine you've got a friend coming over, okay? And you're having a really great time. Then it starts to get dark. And you say, oh, let me light a few candles and we'll carry on. And your friend's like, why are you lighting some candles? Turn on the lights. And you're like, well, I can't. I can't afford the bill. Um, So we're just going to have to do the best with what I've got, all right? It's candles or nothing. And your friend says, I'm going to go down to the utility company, okay? And I'm going to sort all this out. And I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to pay that bill for you, okay? And with that, they leave before you can stop them. You're just sort of sat there thinking, what? They're going to go pay my bill? And they're gone. They're gone a long time. An hour passes. Not much has happened. And as you're sat there, how do you know that your friend's offer to pay your bills has worked? Well, the lights will come back on. You see, they paid your bill. It had an effect. Something was reversed. Something happened. It did something. And on the cross, something was reversed. Something happened. It, it did something. It had an effect. But what is our proof that it's worked? It's the resurrection. You see, sin brought death. 
And if Jesus has suffered for our sins and our sins are washed clean, then that means the effects of sin are gone as well. So that means that death should be gone. Don't you see? The resurrection shows that our sin has been destroyed and dealt with and paid for. It's gone. Death doesn't work anymore. Jesus showed that by defeating it and coming back to life. Jesus Jesus didn't just proclaim victory to disobedient and imprisoned spirits from Noah's day after being made alive. He proclaimed victory to the world and to us too. I am victorious. I live again. His resurrection is a proclamation to all peoples, all cultures, all powers, all authorities for all time that Jesus, Jesus has done it. He's not just done it, it worked. So if you find yourself trying to be good, okay, in order to earn your way to heaven, you need to think on the resurrection and hear Christ proclaim to you, I have done it. Maxim, I've done it. Stop it, I've done it. If you find yourself beaten down by a sin or a condemning voice, think on the resurrection and hear Jesus proclaim to you, I have suffered it for you. You don't have to. It is exhausted. I'm I'm living. Gregor, it is exhausted. Stop it. Stop focusing on that sin. It's gone. That is the basis of our pledge of a clear conscience during our baptisms. It's not that our consciences are clear. It's that Jesus has washed them for us. We know it works because he didn't say dead. And that's why we proclaim it when we come up from the water. That's why it's such good news. If you find yourself cold to Christ... Think on the resurrection and hear Jesus proclaim to you, I sit in all authority with all power and you are unworthy and yet I would welcome you to my fold. Come to me. I've done it. I can welcome you. I can change your heart. Hear his invitation to live a blessed life, to live a life so free that you could lose it because your hope is so secure. To live a life so focused on following him that your, your own desires slip Lower and lower and lower down the priority list. Hear his proclamation. Rejoice. Rejoice. For he has broken down every single barrier. And paid every single price there is to pay. To bring us close to God. You don't need to add to it. You don't need to do anything other than revel in what he's done. If you're focused on just the cross. You're only getting half the picture. We need the resurrection. It's not an embarrassment. It is vital. You don't need to add to what Jesus has done. The resurrection proves that it is, it is finished. We just need to revel in the resurrection. This is what we're called to do. This is how we can love life. By looking at him. And don't you want that? Don't you want that? Then put everything else aside and follow him. Look at him. Trust him. And imitate him. And you will live a life that people will be jealous of. Let's pray. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. He, he is risen, Lord God, and we praise you for that because it means that the penalty for our, our sins has been paid 
It means that the curse of sin has been broken. We can see one who has gone before us and will come back and lead us to that glorious eternal life. We thank you for him. Help us to live this way, we pray. Help us to know that true blessing is found in imitating Christ and living in this way. We pray it so that we would proclaim his, his glory and his worth through how we live to the people of Manchester, here in South Manchester and in the city. Lord, we beg of it for the glory of Christ. And we ask it, Lord, because we want to love life. Amen.